Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, I wanted to thank you for the following statistics I'm going to read out. Our podcast channels around the world, our episodes have been downloaded over 2 million times. And I believe that's a very conservative number because before we moved on to iTunes, we hosted our episodes on another platform and the downloads were not tracked at that point. In fact, if you look at countries like Singapore, India, France, Hungary, Belgium, even Canada, the UK, Australia, our channels on strategy and case interviews routinely rank within the top 10 for careers. And in fact, in some times of the year, around September, October, we usually jump to number one in many parts of the world. So thank you for making that possible. And because we have such a diverse audience all over the world who have allowed us the opportunity to build these channels and build firms consulting and the rest of the businesses, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to Marketing Saves the World, marketingsavestheworld.com or firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples, previews, and free episodes of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So as you know, FC Insiders is an elite level. It takes you some time to get to that level. And many people ask us for samples and previews and so on. So the only way... The only way to get those previews is to join the list on marketingsavestheworld.com or firmsconsulting.com. And in fact, we have two big offers coming up. As you know, Bill Madisoni's memoir and documentary was done by Firms Consulting. As far as we know, it is extremely rare for a former McKinsey and BCG partner to publish the memoir. So Bill Madisoni was Marvin Bauer's mentee. He became a partner in two years at McKinsey, and he developed McKinsey's leadership strategy, basically the strategy that allowed McKinsey to leapfrog over BCG and Bain by defining McKinsey by its leadership attributes versus its strategy attributes. Now, we're going to be launching a promotion soon, and if you've looked at our prices, you know we are pretty premium. However, we're going to go with very, very accessible pricing so that clients around the world, whether you live in India, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Canada, Mexico, and so on, you can buy this. The special pricing means we're going to price these items for, my guess, is below $20. You will get access to the book and the documentary for that price. And it's a one-self offer. It's not going to happen very often, and it's only available through this list. So go to marketingsavestheworld.com and firmsconsulting.com. Along with access to that special offer, you will also receive sample episodes of our insider content. For example, you could get a sample episode of Competitive Strategy with Kevin Coyne. Kevin Coyne is an ex-McKinsey partner, former worldwide head of strategy, and he had served something like over 25 CEOs on a personal level, on a one-to-one -one basis over his career. Kevin also has a program called How to Become a McKinsey Partner. It's the first time ever a McKinsey partner has gone on record talking about what is actually required to become a partner and you'll find it's very different from what you think is required. The 21-day programs, which are very, very popular. How to Develop Deep Insights, which I have put together, one of our most popular programs. The Electric Car Startup. You will get sample episodes of all of those programs and more if you sign up to this list. So, that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our case interview and management consulting channel. So in today's episode, I have something different and quite interesting. Recently, we passed a major milestone, and it's an interesting milestone because what it says is that 
If you look at the history of firms consulting, since the time we started in 2010, and we were very unique because we only allowed ex-partners of major firms to mentor our clients, and we still follow that model. Since the time we began, if you look at every client we have ever had, and if you look at the percentage success placement rate we've had just for McKinsey, Bain, and BCG, on Monday this week, our placement rate passed 80%. That means that 80% of every client we've ever had has ended up at McKinsey, Bain, or BCG, or at least received an offer which they may have declined. Quite a few of our clients decline offers from McKinsey and Bain and so on to take on roles in banking, private equity, which is quite popular, and so on. So that's a big milestone for us. It's a huge milestone because 80% placement rate puts us far above anyone else. And what I want to do is I want to talk to you about what we've done. We did some very specific things. Some of these changes started a long time ago. Some of them started two years ago. But we started very specific changes that led to that increase in our placement rate. Now, before I get into the mechanics of what we did, I understand that some of you listening to this episode may be worried, maybe a little bit scared, because maybe you're not getting the results you want with your own case interviews. Maybe your careers are not going in the right direction. Maybe you've been declined several times. Maybe you've never even received an interview. Maybe you've given up on McKinsey, but you're listening to this episode because you think it will help you with other interviews. I think the thing that's important to point out is that the mere fact that you're listening to this podcast means that you are trying to improve your career. You're trying to improve your life. And that is an important achievement in itself, the act of trying to improve. Because I can assure you there are quite a lot of people who accept what comes their way and have decided that they can't achieve anymore and they simply move from available opportunity to available opportunity versus trying to adjust, learn, and course correct. So don't be too hard on yourself. The fact that you're listening to this, the fact that you're trying to improve is a big achievement. It puts you in quite a small percentage of the professional pool in terms of how you're trying to move forward, right? So let's get into things, right? Another point I want to make is that um, we're not trying to sell anything by discussing our 80% placement rate. We're very proud of it. No one else can make that claim, right? We have ex-partners doing all of our uh, mentoring and coaching, which is why we can, why our, our rate is so high. We have background knowledge that other people don't have. More importantly, the person who makes the decision on whether you get the offer or not is the person who does the final round interview, and that's a partner. So the people we use to do your preparation, the people who make the decision, as opposed to the people who let you in, which are junior people, to the person who makes the decision. But as I said, we're not trying to sell anything because we do have a very long waiting list to join our programs. Even if you applied now, you couldn't join our program. So this is not a sales podcast or an indirect sales podcast. We are selling nothing here. You can join our programs even if you wanted to. You just couldn't join our one-on-one coaching program, which is the jewel. It's the crown jewel of Firms Consulting. It is the anchor. It drives everything else we have. All of those lessons and insights we generate from the one-on-one coaching permeates into all of our online courses and so on. So I'm going to be very candid, very honest. I'm not going to attack anyone. I'm not going to belittle anyone's capabilities yet, but I'm going to be candid. And I think at times people don't like honesty, but I'm going to be honest. And if I say something that you may take personally, always ask yourself, 
before you start defending it, is it true? And if it's true, rather than being upset about the fact that I'm telling you something that no one else is telling you, what can you do to improve, right? A lot of times I do get shocked because I'm the messenger of um, important news, which usually tends to be bad. But I want you to keep an open mind here as you're listening to this, because I think a lot of people won't tell you the truth, but would simply want you to feel good, take whatever they're selling, and then you're stuck at the end having achieved nothing. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you what we've learned, even if it makes you a bit unhappy. But of course, I want you to remember that it's better to hear from me these things than learn the hard way, right? So just a brief background in terms of where this all started and some very little context. I've put out other episodes about things we've done that I'm going to discuss in the context, so it's going to be very brief, right? So basically, our model to the way we train people is different. Besides using ex-partners, which is a big, big point of differentiation for us, we also collect an inordinate amount of data. So we've had over a 1,000 clients in our case interview coaching program, right? For each of those clients, we have a model that tracks everything about them. And I remember when I first started building this model, I used to do it by hand. An Excel spreadsheet when a client, everything the client did when they interact with us, number of emails, their tone, how long they took to respond, their GMAT score, their GPA scores, where they worked, what cases we did with them, how many pauses they'd had in the case, how many times they answered a question, how many questions they asked, how long it took to finish the case, where their weaknesses were. When I started that, people thought it was a bit of a crazy model, and no one thought it would work. But when you've been doing this for seven years and large parts of the model are now automated, we're able to see things that we couldn't see otherwise. Now, I'm not going to talk about the mechanics of the model. We've discussed that before, but I want to say that that's a big reason why we're able to make these changes that we're able to make, right? Let's get into the rate. The rate is calculated as follows. 80% placement rate says that of all of the clients we have placed into McKinsey, Bain, and BCG, divided by all of the clients we've ever had. So we've had just over a 1,000 clients, and just over 800 of them have been placed. Gives us an 80% placement rate. Of those clients, about 200 haven't been placed, which gives us a 20% non-placement rate. Now, a non-placement rate is an important thing to understand because the reality is not that bad, but for us it's bad. Those 200 are not unemployed. They've ended up at tier two firms and other firms and so on. They're not unemployed. Some of them may still be looking for positions, but no one's really unemployed here, right? So it's not as if 80% includes every person who's, who's employed. No, the 80% just includes the big three firms. Now, some of you listening to this will say, but Michael, you know, obviously you guys have a high placement rate. You're taking in the best people. I'm going to explain to you why that's not the case as I get into the changes we made. Right? So for example, people look at Alice in TCO2. Now, by the way, we don't count the people from the TCO programs because they are not they're not effectively coaching clients. They are in the program TCO. So people like Alice, Felix, and so on are not part of this measure. But for those people who don't know, Alice was declined at McKinsey and Bain before she joined the program. So when people say, well, they're very good people that have gotten anyway, they don't understand that these people didn't get in before. And we had to work with them, right? So the rate is not high because we've taken in easy people. The rate is high because of some changes that I will explain in the next few minutes. So now let's get into the changes we made, right? The first thing is that 
we change our strategy for improving our placement rate. Our placement rate is important to us because we want to only do work and work with clients where we feel there's a reasonable chance of making them successful. Now, what is the point of working with a client if you're just taking their money and they're going to fail? So we measure this placement rate. And for those of you who followed firms consulting from the beginning, we've always reported the placement rate. Even right at the beginning when our placement rate was 5%, we reported it and explained that it's 5%. We know why it's 5%. We're making changes. Took it up to 20%. Then we took it up to 30%. Then 40%. Then 60%. Then 70% and now 80%. So we've always reported the rate even when it was bad. Right? For those of you who remember that famous article I sent out in November of 2011, they'll know what I'm talking about. When I refunded some clients well, most clients, because I just didn't like a group one-on-one -on -one session. So this is not new. We've always been tracking this. Our old strategy was to focus on the clients we had. So if we had, if I, if we were working as firms consulting with 80 clients, we would 100% focus on the 80 clients to make them as successful as possible. But here's the math problem you face. Over time, as you accumulate more and more past clients, you have to have a lot of current clients to be successful to make up for failure, for lack of a better word, with past clients, right? So for example, if you've got if you've got five current clients today and you've got ten older clients, you place all of your five clients and you place five of the prior clients, you've got something like a 66% placement rate. Because you've got five divided by 15. But if you've got 800 past clients and you, you just place five clients today, you can see how the five gets diluted when divided by the obviously large percentage of 800 that didn't get in. So the only way for us to fix that problem was to take in more current clients, but that had another problem because you can only take in so many clients before your quality levels start diluting, right? Now you can get you can get uh, fancy with the with the way you calculate the ratio. You can say that we had a ninety percent placement rate for just the past year, but that's that's a fancy that's just fudging the numbers, right? Which is why we're reporting the entire period from the time firms consulting has ever been around. So the old strategy of only working with existing clients doesn't work. The bigger we get and the more legacy clients we have, so we shifted our strategy in the last two years, maybe two and a half years. We started saying we're going to focus on three things. One is existing clients. We have to do well with existing clients, right? So we're going to take in not too much, but a manageable number, and we're going to assign them well when they're working with coaches. Two, we're going to be more careful with new clients we bring in. And again, careful doesn't mean bringing in the best people so our rate goes up. And again, I'll explain why. We actually usually get tougher clients, right? So, that, so existing clients and new clients. I'll tell you the changes we made for new clients and existing clients sh shortly. The other change we did, which is unusual, is we went back to older clients who were declined. So we keep a database of every client. I know every client personally because I interviewed them during the admissions pro process to join our program. I know every single past client. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and say that every client loves us. There are some clients who blame us for not getting in. They're not the majority. They're not even a minority. They're like a tiny sliver of clients but every 
professional services firm in the world, no matter how prestigious they are, whether they are the world's most prestigious private equity firm, investment bank, consulting firm, there's some clients that don't like you. We have that as well. Clients don't like us. Not a big number, one or two or three, but they exist. Sometimes clients change their contact details. So off-price clients, I can say we're in touch with about 90% of them. The rest, they've moved on and so on. Of that 90%, we've been encouraging them to reapply, and we can do that because of our data model. So we know if a client's of a certain profile, we can compare them against other clients who fit the same profile and say, hey, you need to do the following things. Or you, but mostly it comes down to watching the right kind of videos we have. So we can tell clients that you know, people with your profile tended to, tended to have done better when they watched these programs and these videos for whatever reason, and we encourage them to reapply. So we've been getting clients who have previously declined. You know, the two-year period has passed, the three-year period has passed, so they can reapply. We've been getting them to reapply. And that's, I think, a big thing for us because a lot of organizations, once they stop working with someone, they never want to go back to them because they're worried about you know, the bad blood creator. We, we have a good relationship with by far the majority of our clients. So we've gone back and we've reworked them into the system, right? And we've obviously, we don't have capacity now to deal with them one-on-one, but we have a lot of video content that they can use if they choose to. And by far, you know, the take-up on that is close to 88%, I think, if the numbers are correct. And they've done very well, right? So that's a big thing for us, right? Now, so that's our strategy, not just existing clients going and looking at new clients and older clients. Now I'm going to talk you through the 11 or 10 odd changes we made that really caused clients in each category to do better. Number one, it's reading the client profile a lot better before it even arrives. Now, what does that mean? Even before someone applies to us, I can tell you a lot about that person. And by knowing a lot about that person before they apply, we can make some changes to the way we train them, to the way we manage them. Right? So let's think about this. Our programs are on a straight cost basis. They're expensive. In terms of the value they create, they are quite cheap, right? Because you know our placement rates are very high. You get to work with ex-partners. You learn a lot. You get in. The cost-benefit analysis is, in many ways, I don't like the word no-brainer, but it should be a no-brainer, but an absolute cost base, it's very high. So the thing you have to remember is that I can think of few clients, not many, but I can think of about 10% of clients who come to us have never worked with anyone before and have never been declined. So they have no strikes against them. They haven't learned any bad habits. They've never been declined by an office. They haven't tried other things. The other 90% have tried. They've tried other services. They've gone for interviews and they've failed. Now, people forget this, but when you've done all those things, you're a much tougher client, right? For one thing, if you've been declined by a McKinsey office before and you're applying again, that's going to count against you. We've got to overcome those hurdles. So not only is our client base tougher, but even with this tougher client base, we're getting an 80% placement rate. So the first thing is you must understand that our clients have tried many other things and they failed. They've failed and there's two problems here. One, they have hurdles to applying to certain offices and certain firms. So if you were declined only a year ago, it's going to be hard to reapply. Not impossible, but very hard. 
On top of that, they've tried other things. So why are they not doing well? Is it because they have access to the wrong information? Is it because they've practiced the wrong way? Do they have a challenge in the way they are learning the content? So when clients come to us, we are getting a tougher crowd by default that the majority of people will try a cheaper option. But when they try the cheaper option and they fail, they materially hurt their profile because they have a strike against them for an office and they can't immediately reapply. And if it's a few years later, you still fail. People think twice about whether they need to re-interview you or not. So that's a big material difference that I think, you know, we have taken more care to, to, to take into consideration. And clients forget that when they apply to our program. We are getting tougher clients by default. We're not getting the easiest group. We're getting the, the toughest group possible. And therefore, we have to develop programs that cater for that. So by knowing the profile of our clients, we have to be much careful in vetting them but also knowing they're probably missing the fundamentals. They, they could get an interview before, but again, it doesn't mean they'll get an interview again. And I'll explain to you why in a minute. But even if they get an interview before, they didn't get in. So there's some weakness. If they couldn't get an interview before, there's something probably wrong with their profile. So we're getting the toughest group. We're aware of that. We have to change the way we work with them. And more importantly, we... We have to get the client to understand they're a different profile. Because a lot of times clients think, well, I got, I went to Wharton, I got declined, it'll be easy for me to get an interview again. No. As soon as you're an experienced hire, it's much harder to get an interview, no matter where you went to school. So the first thing is reading the profiles better. Two, and this is, two is a big one. It's about understanding the long tail of MBAs and others. Others are PhD lawyers and MSCs and so on, and I'm grouping them together because they manage in the same way. And you can also say the long tail of experience. So long, what is a long tail? Basically, if you took every MBA client we've had or every MBA client applicant who applies to our program and you plot them in a normal distribution, you're going to get everyone clustering around the middle and you're going to get these tails at the bottom, right? That's the long tail. And if you rearrange that graph, as a, you know, if you rearrange the graph, you get a hump with a long tail at the end. So what does that mean? MBAs behave very differently based on where they are in that tail. So the long tail is like this. Someone who is years away and not thinking about applying for an MBA. That's right at the front. Someone who's applying just before they get in, just about, just after they get declined, and then a long time after they're declined, usually they've left the MBA. The behavior of MBAs is very different. Depending on where you are in this curve, which I'll talk to first. Second, depending on where you are and whether or not you go to a good school, your behavior changes. And third, depending on where you are in this long tail and depending on your personality type, you're a different profile of clients. So let's talk about the long tail first. When a client tells me, Michael, I got into a business school, I get worried. That's not a lie. I get worried. I get concerned because clients change their behavior when they got into an, when they get into an MBA program. I'll tell you why. When a client is working with us before an MBA, they're usually working with us because for all intents and purposes, while we are 
you know, a prestige premium service, which is still substantially cheaper than a Wharton or Harvard MBA. So we are, if compared to that, we're a, we're a cheaper option, right? Now, and this is, now I'm actually going to quote actual clients here, right? When, when the clients get into Harvard, Wharton, or Stanford, or whichever good school, I'm just naming those three, there are other many good schools, not just on the US, some Europe, and so on, right? The behavior switches. They think that, okay, I'm spending so much money, it's Harvard, it's Wharton, it's Kellogg, it's Booth, these are amazing schools, I'm going to get in. I'm going to get into McKinsey, I'm going to get into BCG, I'm going to get into Bain. And what happens to them then is they become, for lack of a better word, a little bit arrogant. But also because they think that going to a good school is a sure bet to get in, 95% of times they become the way they really are. What I mean by that? You know what someone is like when you see how they treat you when they think they don't need you. So not all clients are like this, but when, when and not all applicants are like this, but when someone's about to go into a big school, they have bought into the marketing of the school, which says that, oh my God, we train future leaders. Most of our client most of our students go to McKinsey, even the Harvard Business School only places on a good year five percent of its people into McKinsey. 5%. But for some reason, someone going to Harvard is thinking, you know what? I'm going to be that 5%. Or they're not even thinking about that. For some reason in their head, they think like 80% of Harvard graduates get into McKinsey. 60% of Wharton graduates get into McKinsey. So when people get into those schools, their behavior changes. They say, okay, I'm going to become difficult because I'm going to get in. It doesn't matter. I've made it. I can stop in inverted commas, pretending to be this nice person and asking for advice because I'm, I've made it. I've gotten into a good school, right? So when someone's far away from getting into an MBA program, they tend to be nice. When they get in or they're about to get in, a very large segment starts showing what I would say their not-so-nice colors. They become difficult to manage because they believe that they are entitled to many things and that society needs to treat them in a different way, right? So that continues. Just before interviews, um, and, and assuming no interview offers have been made, they still bind to the hype. Immediately after interviews, behavior changes. Reality sets in when you realize that despite what the school has told you, you've either misinterpreted the data or you were just too ambitious. Then they become normal again. That's the long tail. We definitely are much more careful and tougher when we screen people who have just gotten into an MBA program or in an MBA program but haven't interviewed yet. Because I can assure you, of the applicants we get, 95% don't make the grade. It's only the 5%. And again, the 5% is determined by two things. If you go to a good school, but I think you're well-grounded and confident, you're a good fit for our program. I think when people are not confident and they don't think they fit in, they overcompensate by exhibiting behavior that they think they need to have. And that's usually being hypercritical, difficult, tough, 
they forget that you can be a nice person and go to an MBA program, right? So we look for that niceness factor. Second, the school you go to matters. If you're a nice person in a good school, that's the gold standard. And we've had clients like that. And we have clients like that, right? And I think it's a pleasure to work with them. You know, you hear these statements that Harvard people are arrogant. That's not true. I mean, I'm sure there are Harvard people that are arrogant. I'm sure there are Wharton people that are arrogant. But I would say that the people that are worthy, deserve to be there, are well-grounded, feel sure of themselves, they are actually very pleasant to work with. Now, when you get to Tier 2 schools, we do have a lot of clients from Tier 2 schools, I think the opposite happens. I think when people go to Tier 2 schools, a large number of them are extremely, what's the word I'm looking for? Overcritical, difficult to work with. Again, they I feel they're overcompensating. They say that, okay, I, I'm going to this school. It's not such a good school. I've got to be more like what I think a Harvard person is like. But if you've never been to Harvard, you don't know what a Harvard person is like. So you you project the imagery of what you think is. And it's usually being difficult, right? So the long tail of MBAs is something we've understood better because we've got more data on it. The long tail of PhDs, experienced hires, and lawyers, they're all the same. Basically, the way to look at it is that um, I think that PhDs, lawyers, and so on, they tend to be tougher as I mentioned earlier, good MBAs at the great schools are very nice. Good PhDs at the great schools behave like weaker MBAs at the good schools. They tend to be very critical, very difficult to work with. And I think here, they're almost compensating for the fact that they are a PhD at a good school and not an MBA at a good school. So they're trying to exhibit behaviors like what they think an MBA at a good school has, or what they've seen a few MBAs at a good school have. So they're very difficult to work with. Of course, there are exceptions, but they're generally difficult to work with. PhDs at generally weaker schools, even if they're very good PhDs, they tend to be nicer to work with. So it's interesting you get that dichotomy, right? But we've become much better at understanding the long tail of MBAs and PhDs, right? The third thing we've done is testing personality. This is a big one. And people don't even see it. If you are someone who has an abrasive personality in the way you interact, in the way you speak, naturally the person to whom you are speaking feels that and responds in a certain way. So one of the things we've been very careful with is to look at how the personality type comes across. How do they write emails? How demanding are they? What do they ask for? Are they polite? Do they seem entitled? Do they have a way of speaking that is off-putting to people? Now, a lot of people, when you do cases, you just focus on solving a case. But the way you trigger the interviewer's response to you determines how the interviewer is going to help you during a case. And I've mentioned this many times. An interviewer can help you in a case or they may choose not to help you. Whether or not they do both is a partly a function of the way you handle the case but largely a function of the way you come across to the interviewer in a personal way. And people have seemed to have forgotten this, right? So we've been looking at personality a lot more closely. I recently had a client from, um, it doesn't matter where, but anyway, I don't think the person is a, was or is aware that they have a very abrasive personality. 
And in that particular case, I had to tell them, look, you have an abrasive personality. People are not going to like interacting with you. It doesn't matter if other people said they like interacting with you. I can't take their words into consideration because there are a number of reasons why they may, may have told you that. Maybe they want a job from you. Maybe they need something from you, so they're telling you things to make you feel good. I can only assess you based on what I'm seeing, and you have a tough personality, right? So if you have a tough personality, it affects everything. It, forget about getting to the interview. It's going to affect the coaching. Some people think they're at a fish market where everything's negotiable. You know, I'll have a session with a client, and I'll say, you know, I have to... Um, end the call now because it's just past the time we allocated and I've got another client I need to speak to and they want to get into a negotiation about why they need more time. It makes it difficult because one, you know, you don't want to get into a discussion with a client while you're making another client wait. But here you have someone who's aware they're doing it and they think it's okay. Those kind of things are more common with MBAs, I would say. I would say it's a fact they're more common than MBAs. Because MBAs are trained to value tough negotiations. They think that that is a good trait. And I think as an MBA, look, I worked with some of the best Harvard people, the best Wharton people. They are nice. If you're watching the show Billions on Showtime and you're mimicking that behavior because that's what you think someone in business needs to have, that's a problem. Right? So testing personality types. Now, linked to personalities we can see the differences between males and females. Now, up front, I want to point out the following thing. If you read enough of the New York Times and many publications, you would think that if you just made all CEOs in the world female and all presidents in the world female and all defense secretaries female, there'll be no wars, no fighting, no conflict, no poverty. That is nonsense. Because to say that is to imply one gender is superior to the other. It doesn't matter who runs the world. There's going to be problems. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be greed. There's going to be stupidity and incompetence. So if you fall for that trap of thinking that if we just had more females, the world would be better, that is inherently not true. Right? It can't be true. But what we have seen is that given the fact that there are so few opportunities for females... When they do get opportunities to work with us, they tend to do better on average. They tend to be more disciplined, more resilient, more careful, and more attentive. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to take all females, because again, part of the reasons why females do better is because of the attention on them. And if all CEOs were females, there'd be no attention on them, and then you'd see the bad eggs coming out. The next point I want to make is, and this is probably point number four, is that generally the more you practice, the more worse you will do. There are a lot of clients who will write to us and say, Michael, I practiced 200 cases. And uh, because of that, I just don't need a lot of help. I just need about two or three weeks to wrap up things and consolidate my thinking and so on. And the problem here is you, you're not distinguishing between the quality of what you've done and the volume of what you've done. Yeah, you've done 200 cases, but what is the quality of that? Is it good? Is it bad? It doesn't matter whom you've practiced with. It doesn't matter even if you've practiced with a McKinsey person. They maybe just don't care about you. They gave you bad advice. Maybe they gave you good advice, but you were not good at taking it. And so when people work with us, we check everything. You know, sometimes people will write to me and they'll say, but Michael, I have an interview at McKinsey. Why does your application process ask 
for all my academic transcripts because my feeling here is very simple. Just because you go into a McKinsey interview doesn't mean anything to us. We want to see what your profile is like. And if you got in for an interview and we feel based on everything we've seen, you don't have, you're not a good fit to join the firm and be successful, they will decline you. So again, it comes back to not assuming anything about a candidate. When someone applies and they say, I did 100 cases, I did 200 cases, I'm, and I feel I've got a good foundation, that means nothing to us. And there have been times in the past where I'd give people the benefit of the doubt, but now we don't give anyone the benefit of the doubt. And that's partly why the placement rate has gone up. In fact, if you tell me you've done 100 or 200 cases, I can assure you you're going to have the toughest interview with us when it comes to screening. You may even have be one of those people that has four interviews with me before we give you a decision on joining the program. So again, it's just basic logic. If you're practicing the wrong way and you're doing it repeatedly, you are becoming really good at doing cases the wrong way. Right? And that's what happens to a lot of people. They do cases the wrong way. And you are basically reinforcing bad behavior. So the more you practice you're probably going to do worse. That is the reality. Now, obviously, there are exceptions. Now, remember, if you're one of those people who are naturally good at cases and you pick up things fast, you probably don't have to do 200 cases. I didn't do 200 cases during the firm. I did three, right? I'm not saying I'm incredibly intelligent or anything like that, but I'm saying it's... I've never met someone in my career who's done 200 cases when I was a consultant. And in the partners that I know... I don't know anyone who's done so much. But again, that's a group that is a natural fit for consulting, I think. That's not to say you shouldn't do 200. That's, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the following. If you are paying a lot of attention and you're making the most of the cases you are doing, you don't have to do 200. You can learn all of the principles from fewer cases. Two, doing 200 doesn't make you better because there could be problems with the way you are doing it, right? Now, the other change we made, you can call this the fifth change, is we opened up the lead time. What is the lead time? The lead time is the time between when you join our program and when you must interview. We've now made it 12 months. So if you want to apply to a firm, great, join our program, but if you can't join our program in January and tell us you want to apply in May, we won't allow that. We won't allow that for many reasons. One is, it's hard to get ready in five months. Remember, the profile of candidates we have is people who've tried everything else, got declined, so they've tried everything else, it doesn't work for them. On top of that, they've got declined, which means they've got a strike against them and they've got to overcome that strike. And yet, they want to ramp up their preparation. It doesn't make any sense. They need to take longer. It increases their stress. They have no time to build up the basics. And things just hurt them. Right? So we've opened up the lead time. That's made a very big difference for us, giving people more time to prepare. It reduces their stress. They can prepare at a leisurely pace and actually learn the basics versus just jumping into all of the complex cases and assuming they'll pick it up, right? Now, linked to this, we've, we've changed the resume editing. And this is a big one for us. When you get declined at a firm, the only way they will relook at your profile before, say, 18 months or two years is if you've made a material change to your profile. There's two ways to make a material change to your profile. One is you gain new experience. Or two, you rewrite your resume so that, and this is important, you rewrite your resume so that 
they see new things or they see new insights about your profile that they never saw before. Because when you write your, your resume, they peg you as a certain kind of applicant, right? And if they see your resume again and it's got roughly the same things, you are the same applicant to them. But if they see a resume that's completely different, not just formatting, but in the tone, substance, and insights, they're going to say, yeah, you know what? For whatever reason, this guy had a different resume. It's, it's a completely different profile. You know, either we've um, he was rushing and we've just misunderstood his background, but now we've seen something new. So a lot of clients, they're able to re-interview so fast because there's so much effort that goes into rewriting their resumes. Rewriting the resume beyond all of the other five or whatever changes we've made is one of the biggest differences in the way we manage things. It is rare I'd get someone to bypass rewriting a resume. And when I do that, I'll tell them we're taking a gamble here to not rewrite your resume. Even if you get an interview, I'd still ask you to rewrite your resume. There are rare moments when I'll say, okay, let's not do it. Most of the time, I'd get you to rewrite it. And it's a material difference. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whom approved your resume. We will always make it better. And that can never be bad for you. So let's think about the sort of the lost counter. It's probably the seventh uh, change is what I call a parking strategy. A parking strategy is that if I feel that you need to reduce the stress levels, I may ask you to take another job at a bank in the meantime, or a Fortune 100 or Fortune 200 or even Fortune 500 company to just consolidate your life, get some stability before you apply. Because the last thing that I want is someone who hates their job so much that they're willing to interview at McKinsey in three months, even if the odds of them getting in are so low. I tell them, look, take another job and then interview at McKinsey when you are ready, even if it's like nine months from now, even if it's a year from now. But why blow this chance just because you want to escape your current job? Same with MBA candidates, especially um, foreign students in the United States where their residency requirements are dependent on getting a job. In that case, they try to plug everything into a very short space of time. And I always tell them, take your time, think about it, do it very carefully. Right? So we foster parking strategy on many clients and then they have more time to prepare. In the time we've had, we've improved both the volume and the quality of the videos we have available to clients. We've become a lot better and knowing which videos work for certain profiles. For example, we know that shows like Partner in Three Years and so on, they become, they teach people a lot about communication skills and how to navigate issues. And people going for interviews say, but that's not important to me. Of course it's important to you. It's very important to you. So because as the volume of our library has increased, people have more material to practice with. And not just TCO content, we're talking about content in the executive program and so on, because this teach you very clean, critical thinking skills. So while the volume of, of videos have increased, we analyze all the usage data in those videos, and we can know that certain profiles do better when they watch certain videos, right? Because I tell people, watch this video, then I see how they perform in a the session, then I say, okay, this video has worked for this profile, and in our big model, it tells us, well, PhDs tend to do better when they watch this video, um, this profile tends to do better when they do watch this video and so on, right? Now I'm going to come to the um, sort of three big changes. I'm leaving them for the end because they're quite controversial, but they're big. 
First one is we are eliminating long tail offices. Again, if you took every office in the world and you plotted it on a normal distribution or kind of histogram, some offices are large, well-known with established practices, and we know a lot about them. We know how they work, we know their principles, and it's easier to place clients there. Other offices, they may be large, they may be well-known, but we feel their behavior is erratic. Or we feel that they may have some tendencies, I don't want to say it here, but which would not pass a labor department investigation. So we, we eliminate long-tail offices. Now, previously, if you wanted to apply to, previously being until early last year, I would say, if you wanted to apply to some tiny office somewhere, I'd help you. But now, up front, I want to know which offices you're going to. And if it's one of the long-tail offices, we'll, we'll explain to you why we don't want to help you to get join that office. And if you still want to apply, that's fine, but we won't admit you to our program. Now, why don't I want to help someone join a long-tail office? It's simple. If an office is really small and we don't have a lot of clients in that office and I have not interacted much with that office, it's very hard for me to know how they do things. Even if I have interacted much with an office that's really tiny, tiny offices that tend to be new or tend to be far away from the orbit of major economies tend to do things their own way. There's no reason for them to behave in a certain established practice. It's not just my familiarity. I could be very familiar with an office, but it could be a long-tail office based on just the way it behaves. Now, we no longer pursue long-tail offices. If you want to join it, that's fine. We'll tell you up front we can't really do anything for you there. So what that means is that the majority of offices we now target with our clients are New York, Boston, Atlanta, San Francisco, LA, Silicon Valley, Chicago, and the three Texas offices. Internationally, it's a bit more spread out, but again, the vast majority of clients are concentrated in just a few areas. London, the German offices, Paris, the Swiss offices, Singapore, the Middle Eastern offices, India, and Australia. That's where the vast majority of our clients are concentrated. Within those, of, within those countries, for example, Australia has seven of, several offices, we concentrate our clients there in all offices because there are no long-tail offices in Australia. In Germany, there are some long-tail offices and we don't we encourage our clients not to apply. You notice Toronto is not on this list. It's what we call a long-tail office. Now, people are going to write to me and say, but Michael, why would you say this? I, I don't want to get into detail. Every office has its own reason why we've classified it as a long-tail office, right? Some offices, new. We don't know anything about them. Vancouver, they're a long-tail office for us. Not because they've done anything wrong. We don't know them. They're too young for, to have a pattern. We have only have one client in that office, right? And I'm relying everything I do to place someone there is based on this one client's feedback. I don't think it's fair to rely on one client. So eliminating long-tail offices has made a big difference. We target everything around just a few offices. And there's a big offices. I mean, I think 90% of people want to join New York, Boston, Atlanta, San Francisco, LA, Silicon Valley, Chicago, and the Texas offices. Right? So there's no nothing really being lost there. But... We're not spending a lot of time trying to figure out how things work in Seattle because it's not a popular office. 
not only is it not a popular office, certain things that they're doing is unusual and I don't want to send clients in there. And again, it may not be bad, it's just it's very hard to pin down what they are doing. What makes something a long-tail office is they may be doing something bad, which is sometimes the case. They may be new, which means we don't know anything about them. Or it may not be popular, but the bottom line is, if you summarize it all up, a long-tail office is an office where it's very hard for us to figure out how to use our abilities to get you in there. And we've eliminated many offices. Now, there's also long-tail countries. Yes, there are long-tail countries. Countries that we've just chosen not to help clients get into. Japan is one of them. Japan's a long-tail country. If a client writes to us and says they want to join the Japanese office, okay, but we, we can't help you. We've chosen not to invest time in understanding the Japanese office. Now, I'm telling you this, knowing full well that I'll lose Japanese clients. But that is the kind of organization we are. We're not just going to take your money and pretend we can help you. I'm pretty sure if someone will use our program, they can be very successful joining the Japanese office our videos, and we have clients like that. But on our coaching clients, we'll tell them, if Japan is your first choice, and it's your only choice, we couldn't take you. If Japan's one of three choices, the other one is, let's say, Singapore and China, then yes, you could work with us. But if Japan's your only choice, it's going to be a little bit different. Now, does that mean we're ignoring certain parts of the world? I don't think we are ignoring certain parts of the world. All of our training is irrelevant. But... There are certain parts of the world where it's easier to get in versus others, and that's where we are focusing our efforts. Finally, I said there were three big things. This is a, a tough one, but it's an important one. For us to enforce these rules means we sometimes have clients who don't like them. And that's a fact. I get into, I wouldn't say I never get into an argument, because for an argument, two sides have to lose their cool, but... Sometimes clients become upset. They'll say, Michael, every friend has told me that I should do this. And I'll say, that's fine, but I'm not going to listen to your friends for a number of reasons. One, I don't know them. Two, I don't know their level of competence. Three, I don't know their bias or conflict of interest. And four, you may just have misinterpreted them. To enforce this means sometimes you have to make, not sometimes, oftentimes you have to make clients very unhappy. Clients get upset when I tell them, look, if you want to do this, that's fine, but I'm not supporting it. Because it's wrong. It doesn't matter if your mother's brother is a McKinsey partner in the India office. To me, that's a conflict of interest. He can't upset you by telling you the truth because he's a family member. And even if he's not like that, I don't know him. So I'm not going to take his advice. Other times you get someone who adamantly agrees. Look, a recruiter said I must apply. I will get the interview. I'll get in. I say, look, you can do what the recruiter says. But... I'm not letting you into the program if you do it. That's it. Other times, if you want to do it, that's fine. You're out of the program. And that upsets clients. But here's the thing. When we let people do things, the results... You know, if you're following firms consulting, you know we were always stuck between 60 and 80 for a very long time. And a large part of that is because at times I would, I would roll over and allow clients to do what they wanted. And that hurts because a client doesn't know what's good for them. And I can understand why. You know, at the moment, you've got all these friends telling you things. You don't know who to believe. And you're caught up into the kind of vortex of advice. But we've been tough, very tough. No compromises on when to apply. 
It doesn't matter what someone is saying if it doesn't match common sense, if it doesn't match what we know about that office, if it doesn't match my experience as a partner and that of other partners we know and work with, we just won't do it. Right? You know, a lot of times people say, but a McKinsey analyst told me that. Great. When McKinsey partner tells you something, write to me. But even then, I may not listen to them because I don't know them. It's just because a partner says something doesn't make it true, right? We work with partners that we think are caring. And that's why we take their advice. So those are the changes we rolled out. There's quite a lot of them. You can apply this to your own life. Ask yourself, what kind... I'll go through each one very briefly. Ask yourself, what kind of applicant are you? What kind of applicant are you? Have you been rejected? How have you been rejected? How many... How much have you done already? Why have you not improved? What does that mean about you? Where do you fit on the MBA, PhD, experienced hire, lawyer, long tail? That's important to know. How has your expectations changed once you came into the MBA program, before it, after you went to your interviews? Do you feel like you belong in this MBA program? If not, how does that impact your behavior? What does that mean for the way people perceive you? If you're a PhD or lawyer who's at a good school, why do you overcompensate so much? If you're a PhD who's amazing and brilliant at slightly weaker school, you have nothing to worry about. Same with a lawyer and so on. You tend to do, your personality profile tends to be quite strong. You have to focus on your resume because while you come across very well, your resume tends to be just not a much weaker, but a little bit weaker. What does your personality do to people around you? And not just your close friends or the guy trying to sleep with you. But generally, how do people respond to you? What do you need to know about that? How much have you practiced in terms of cases? And what does that mean? If you have not improved, what have you been doing? What bad habits have you picked up? Why are you under so much stress and pressure to interview in six months? So are you trying to interview in six months because you feel you'll be ready or because you need to get a visa approved? Shouldn't you interview when you are ready? Why? Do you assume that your resume doesn't require much work? The more unique your profile, the more you have to work in your resume to make it look better. If you've been declined previously, you should always be working on rewriting your resume. It's going to be the most important thing. And with our clients, it's almost always the most important thing. Get interim job to reduce the pressure of having to interview immediately. It doesn't matter if you get a job now. The firms don't look down upon that. Use the videos better. Don't rush through them. If you're watching 10 videos a day, there's a problem. right? Clients who do very well use the videos very effectively. That's a very hard rule. Not just the TCO videos, the other videos, because they teach you how we think. right? If you learn to think like a partner, you'll obviously do very well learning to think like someone applying for a job. While we eliminate long-tail offices, you should eliminate long-tail offices as well. Go for the big offices. They are actually easier to get into. Same with long-tail countries. Don't pursue a long-shot country just because it is a possibility, no matter how improbable it is. And finally, ask yourself, when you receive advice that does not comport with um, what you think is best, do you ignore it because it doesn't make you feel good? Or... Do you internalize it and adjust based on what's best for you versus what makes you happy? As always, I hope you enjoyed this. If you find this episode useful, please post a review on our iTunes or Android Store channel. 
for this app because you're probably listening to this on our app. These little things, which may not seem like a big deal, are important to us and they definitely help us. Otherwise, I hope you'll take these learnings and apply them. It's not difficult to get in. It's not difficult to move ahead. It's about getting the right advice, thinking about it, and working on it. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our insider content is to join the list on marketingsavestheworld.com or firmsconsulting.com. Just remember that Bill Madisoni's memoir and documentary, the 20-episode documentary, and his memoir is going to be released worldwide soon. As far as we know, it is extremely rare for a former McKinsey and BCG partner to publish the memoir. The special pricing that we will offer will only be offered for a limited time. It will be only offered to people who subscribe to that email list. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.